Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! How's it going, Duvall Nation? Welcome, hi, thanks for that incredibly warm virtual welcome. I am Derek. This is the Derek Duvall Show, the only show approved by 8 out of 10 dentists. I guess the other two will see the light eventually. This is the last show before we hop into the new year that will be 2022. I am trying to keep my expectations in check that we might have a better year than the last two. But at this point, I want to say that it's up to us. Uh, That would be a stupid statement to make. I hope everyone had an incredible Christmas. I had a good one. Got some great presents from Mrs. Duvall, including a Friends Monopoly game, which I can't wait to play, and a cool, now get get this, this is really cool, a Rocketbook Smart Notebook, which will be a vital tool going forward for the Derek Duvall show. You, You write in it, and then you can erase it, but you also scan it, and it'll take it to like a Google Drive or iCloud or whatever. It's really neat. I can't wait to start using it. Also, I cooked three beautiful filet mignons for our Christmas dinner. I do a few things well in this world, but one of the most important, according to my wife at least, is the ability to cook a damn good, incredible steak. Last night, I finally got to see the latest Matrix film, Matrix Resurrections, and man, let me tell you, it was good, it was entertaining, but I think I need to watch it at least three or four more times to catch what I missed because I ended up having a million questions. I know it's not very popular right now online, and that's fine. Everybody's got an opinion. I will say this, though. I have gotten so used to Keanu Reeves rocking the long hair and the John Wick beard that I forget he can do different things with his face. Also, Carrie Ann Moss can still kick ass. And man, I tell you, when she does that scorpion kick, I always cheer. So it's just such an awesome move. It's on HBO Max for a bit, so be sure to catch it. Uh, One word of warning, I highly suggest watching the prior films again recently before you take on this one. will make the film a hell of a lot less confusing. Also, I have, at my wife and close friend's behest, just finished Ted Lasso. Yes, I was skeptical, but immediately warmed to the show. Yes, Roy Kent is an amazing character. Yes, my wife has adopted a mocking Cockney accent, much to my chagrin. And yes, I look forward to seeing what season three brings. So... Episode 35, this one is a special one for me. Now, I have talked endlessly about my love for my all-time favorite film, plus what some consider to be the greatest film ever made, and that film is Jaws. I thought there would be no other better way to close out 2021 than to get a very in-depth interview with the guy who wrote it, the screenwriter of Jaws, Mr. Carl Gottlieb. He was incredibly gracious with his time. We discussed his illustrious career, including you know acting, and of course, I mean, we are going to talk about Jaws, but I mean, so much of the stuff too, like opinions on movies today, his writing process, uh, hanging out with some of the great rock legends of the 60s and 70s. I mean, this guy has done it, folks. And I mean, he has done it, and he's done it to the beat of his own drum. This is a great interview. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Uh, I will say real fast, there's a little salty language in there, so just, you know, may want to keep the headphones in, you know, instead of not blasting it at work or church or wherever it is that you listen to my show. Wherever it is, I appreciate it anyway. So anyway, that being said, let's just go ahead and get right on into it. As I say time and time again, let's not stand on ceremony. 
Duval Nation, do this for me. Rise to your feet and welcome legendary Hollywood screenwriter, Mr. Carl Gottlieb. Carl, welcome to the show. How has the weather been with you today? Uh, cool and somewhat damp. Before Good day start- to be indoors with a fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be really cold here uh, tonight. We've got a freeze warning, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, before we start, I want to thank you again for coming on. This, for me, is indeed a great honor. Oh, happy to do it. Okay. I like to start my interviews with the same question, reflecting the crazy times we're living in. Uh, how has it been for you to navigate this COVID-19 world we're living in? Uh, actually, it hasn't been too difficult. You know, I, I had a heart attack a couple of years ago, and I had to go into lengthy rehab, and I had 24-hour caregivers hovering over me. But uh, I gradually got back to normal, and uh, I've always lived alone. I've lived alone, you know, except for caregivers. Uh, mm-hmm. I lived by myself, and then when the caregivers... Uh, were through. I was back living by myself very happily. (laughs) And then came COVID, which is basically more living by myself. And luckily, I have the resources to have everything delivered that I need. Mm -hmm. And I have some good friends and and, uh, neighbors. So uh, it wasn't, uh, wasn't much different from my life before COVID, except for everything outside, you know, being masked, where not being able to go to the movies, yeah. the restaurants, all those limitations. But, you know, it didn't affect my, my home life. It affected, my, obviously, my social life and the, my interactions with the real world. But uh, it was essentially more of the same. And that's where I find myself today, you know, it's a year later. And, you know, yeah, I'm living by myself. It's you know, kind of boring, but... Uh, Consider the alternatives. Uh, this is it's fine. So pre-COVID, you just like to go out, get coffee, go to the movies, that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, visit with friends, uh, you know, shop for stuff. You know, one, you know, just just wander around. But uh, mm-hmm. random wandering is over now. <laughs> so, according to what I've read, you were born in the late '30s in New York City. Yep. What was it like to grow up in pre-World War II New York? Well, I mean, pre-World War II, I was three. I mean, I was born in 38, so mm-hmm. World War II began in 41 for us. But I did come of age in 45, 46, when I was you know, conscious, when I was a seven or eight-year-old. And it was the best place in the world. I mean, because of the war, you know, there was no, everything stopped. You know, there was no new construction. There were no new cars being built. So everything was like frozen in amber, wherever it was in 1939 or 40. And that was the New York that you, you know, the New York of Damon Runyon and the New York of, of uh, uh, Jim, Mayor Jimmy Walker. And, and, you know, it was, it was like the New York that, that uh, we know, we know from thirties movies and, you know, the thin man and, you know, all those great, uh, artifacts and that was my that was my new york it was the same new york at the you know, mayor fiorello laguardia reading the funnies to the <laughs> the kids on sunday it was a pretty magical city when did all that start to come pick back up again it was about a year or two after the end of the war but things started the industrial machine started moving again yes i mean you know then they, then you know they, they started replacing the buses and the and the uh and the streetcars and uh, uh new construction began i i had even though i lived in manhattan we had vacant lots in my neighborhood wow and they didn't build it and, and it wasn't until after the war that they started building and they and you know the vacant lots all filled up with apartment houses but uh the, the neighborhood was a, a little enclave in northern manhattan and was mm. just a perfect place it was like a small town in the middle of a city you know it's funny when i was in uh, first time I ever got to go to New York was in 2007. And I remember I came in from New Jersey at a red bank and I went under the tunnel and I came out at the Madison square garden station and stepping out of the of Madison square garden and seeing just these 80 story buildings, as far as I can see, uh, it was very overwhelming. Uh, I don't know what it'd been like, you know, to actually grow up there and, and experience it day to day. But I remember the first time I saw it, I was just completely in awe. Oh, it, it was an awesome sight, but, uh, 
um, you know, if you, if you grow up there, it's like, you know, it's like growing up in London or Bangkok or, you know, any, any Hong Kong, any, any world city, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it has a, a public face, which is, you know, commerce and industry and fine art and, uh, you know, all the public institutions. But then, you know, then you've got, you know, 8 million people living there mm-hmm. who take the subway to work. And my father took the subway to work every day of his life. And, and he worked for the city of New York. So he was uh, the best guide you could have. I mean, my <laughs> dad took me around to places that nobody knew about, but he did because he was, you know, worked for the city planning commission. So what are your favorite memories of attending Syracuse? Well, Syracuse, um, well, you know, I, I had gone to, uh, you know, eight years of grammar school, four years of high school, and then two years of college in New York. I went to CCNY, the city, mm-hmm. what is that? I think it's called City University of New York, but in those days it was City College of New York, and where my father went, as a matter of fact. And, and, uh, uh, and I was tired of taking public transportation to school. I mean, I'd taken a subway to high school every day for four years and then two, two more years of buses and subways to get to college. So I welcomed the you know, chance to live on a campus with dormitories and, and uh, you know, college life, a football team. We didn't have a football team at CNY. And they had a great journalism school and a, a, a drama department that I just, you know, fell into with great, great enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And I wound up being a dual major in theater arts and uh, journalism because Syracuse had a very good journalism school. But it was so, right up there with Columbia and Northwestern and the University of Missouri as a place where if you wanted to be a newspaper man or a writer, that was a good, those are good schools to go to. Mm-hmm. And I was going to one. I was, you know, I was uh, living kind of independently on campus and I was taking classes in writing and theater. It was, you know, I, you know, I made friends that I have still in my life. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, uh, it was kind of ideal, you know, in, in retrospect, mm-hmm. I mean, I had to work hard. I had to work by, I worked as a short order cook to, to make, you know, to support myself because I had, I had some scholarship money, but not enough for a full ride. Mm-hmm. So I worked and had a very happy two, two and a half years there, two years. So what was it like to get drafted into the U.S. Army in 61? And uh, what do you remember most before your discharge? Well, in those days, you know, the draft was, first of all, we were all eligible. I mean, on your 18th birthday, you registered for the draft. You got a draft card. And you were theoretically, at that point, 1A, ready to go into the Army. I had a student deferment because I was in college. But when I graduated college, the deferment ran out and I was reclassified 1A. Mm-hmm. And, and there, was no, uh, there was no stigma. There was no Vietnam. You know, we weren't oppressing anybody. Korea was in the past. Everybody's fathers and uncles had served in, in World War II and in Korea. So it was just something, you know, was not, I mean, you got out of it if you could. You know, people would get doctor's letters and look for childhood injuries that they could parlay <laughs> into uh, exemption. Mm-hmm. But if you went in, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. And I mean, it was the army. That wasn't any fun. That was a new experience, but I like, I like new experiences. So, uh, um, you know, I, I wasn't happy in the army, but I adjusted and I, I made the best of it for two years, almost two years. How much you get paid? Well, in those days, I think it was $90 a month. Wow. You didn't, you, you didn't go in the Army for the money. Oh, no, absolutely not. I, I didn't join the Navy for the money either, so I understand. Yeah, you get, you know, you get, you know, you get your meals and everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. What was, your, uh, what was your highest rank before you got out? Yeah, I, I got out of the PFC E3. Mm, nice. Nothing spectacular. <laughs> so what inspired the move to California? I was, uh, let's see, I, I came to Los Angeles in 68, and in 69, I was hired by the Smothers Brothers to write their television show, mm. so that got me into the Writers Guild. What inspired the move from uh, New York to Los Angeles? 
Well, I, I moved from New York first to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I was uh, when I got out of the army. My best friend in New York, my my roommate in New York, had moved on, gone to Second City in Chicago, and then went to San Francisco to open a new theater of improvisation called the Committee. And I had visited him once while I was in the army, and it seemed like a nice gig. And the show was a hit. It was a new art form, and it was progressive and funny and well-attended, well-reviewed. And they needed a stage manager. And at that time in my life, I was more of a techie than an actor. I was a stage manager in college and Summerstock Theater. And I became the committee's stage manager for a year or so. And then I, I directed the company for a while. And then I went to New York to work on Broadway for a year. And then when I came back, I came back as an actor in the show mm-hmm. in spring of uh, 66. So I acted for two years in San Francisco during the uh, summer of love and the hate ashtray, you know, <laughs> 60s in San Francisco was, was the first time when the culture had pivoted to the West Coast. It used to be that culture, literature, the arts, theater was all East Coast, you know, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington. And in the 60s, for the first time, the cultural focus shifted to the West Coast with uh, LSD and uh, Haight-Ashbury and, and uh, you know, Summer of Love and all that stuff. And I, I was, you know, by an accident of geography, I was there. Mm-hmm. So I lived through all of that. I had a great time in San Francisco. And our company decided to open a theater in Los Angeles. And that's when I moved to L.A. in 68. I had a gentleman on here um, a couple months ago. Uh, his name's Rick Turner. He makes guitars for legendary guitar players like Lindsey Buckingham and, and John Mayer and so forth. And he remembered that when he was growing up, um, he was in the 60s in Boston, in the Boston Sound, and that it had migrated, like you said, over to Los Angeles, the summer of love. And he, some of the stories he told of, you know, running around with the Grateful Dead and Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. It just, it, it makes you wonder, you know, w- w- was I born in the wrong era of his history? I'd have loved to have been around to see that. Well, you would have, you would have loved to have been hanging on my shoulders. My roommate was dating Janis Joplin. <laughs> nice. I understand you like to do a lot of behind the scenes work uh, in the guild. What about it interested you so much? It may sound kind of, you know, Pollyannish, but you know, my father was a union man. He was uh, one of the founders of the uh, state, county, and municipal employees union in, in New York, which was tough because New York, like like Boston, had uh, rules against public sector employees unionizing, but they did. They managed. There was a famous police strike in Boston, and so anyway, my dad was a union guy, and my parents were were New York liberals of a, of a classic stripe. So I had all those values. There was a notion of service, of giving back. And so I kind of drifted. I I started speaking up at union meetings. And some of the members who were in guild governance approached me, said, you ought to run for office. You seem to have a, you know, a flair for, for, you know, writer's issues. So I did and I won. And then I just kept rerunning. And I, I, I was on a board of directors. I was a vice president. It just kept doing it. it. You know, it wasn't a burden. Uh, and I, I got to, uh, you know, in my small way, contribute to the welfare of the community of writers. Mm-hmm. And that was like, that's, that was a good thing. That was a good thing to be doing. I never, never felt bad about it. And it was, you know, awkward because there were times where the union was divided and, and you know, whether to strike, not go on strike. We were a very contentious union of all the Hollywood unions the Writers Guild went on strike more than all the others. Yeah. It was exhilarating. I was chair of the negotiating committee in the 1988 strike, which was the longest work stoppage in the history of Hollywood, 100 day, more than 100 days. That was the year there was no fall season because nobody was there to write it. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> I have to ask, how did you meet David Crosby and what led you to, to co-write his autobiography? Oh, when I was at the committee in San Francisco in sixty. Three sixty-four. Mm-hmm. the birds were playing as the house band just a, about 
five doors up from the theater where the committee was playing, where I was playing. And they were playing in a go-go bar called the, uh, the Peppermint Tree. So I would go up to look at the topless girls. Or they, were, they weren't topless yet. They were, uh, they were just go-go, skimpily clad go-go dancers. <laughs> so I would go up to watch the dancers. And I met, and I met Crosby because the birds you know, aspired to more than being a, a house band for, for dancers. So that's when we met. We started hanging out. We found we had a lot in common. And then the birds finished that gig and went back to L.A. where they became the birds. I mean, they, uh, a song that they had recorded in 62 finally made it to airplay in 63. And it was, uh, I think it was Turn, Turn, Turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, they were an instant hit. And, and you know, and Crosby and I were already friends. And so, it, you know, it, it was it was fun to watch him go for that ride. It was pretty pretty wild time for the birds so and we hunt and you know we spent a lot of time together uh and then he got thrown out of the birds by that time i was in la and he was in la that's when he formed crosby stills and nash there was a, a lot of overlap between you know Im- improvisational comedy and rock and roll mm-hmm. uh, so it was a and for and, and for my immersion in san francisco and berkeley scenes it would seem natural in LA to, you know, to continue with the same people, you know, those singers, songwriters, Joni Mitchell was new in town. Uh, David was producing her first album, the association. There was, you know, there's all kinds of uh, bands happening. Uh, Troubadour was a, a much loved venue. That's where Elton John played for the first time. I mm-hmm. went to see Blood, Sweat and Tears opening night before anybody had ever heard of that band. How did a role in MASH, the movie, come about? Uh, one of the first jobs I had as an actor after I got to L.A., besides being in the committee, is uh, Altman saw me in the committee and, and uh, offered me a part in MASH. And that, that was a movie that was large, largely dependent on improvisational talents. Altman encouraged the actors to improvise, and and we did, you know, and... and uh, we we were all working together for about nine weeks on the film. Ring Lardner Jr., who was a screenwriter, hated what Altman was doing with the script and hated that he gave the actors all this autonomy. Hmm. Uh, so he took his name off the script and then it was nominated for an Academy Award and then he put his name back on. <laughs> It's funny how that happens. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was great because you know, uh, we would uh, go out to the Fox lot, get on a bus, ride out to the location, which was uh, the Mash Village, which they used for the movie. I mean, the same yeah. same physical set, and we'd uh, we'd drive out there early in the morning, shoot all day, and come back in the evening. Mm-hmm. And then we finished up. We did some sound uh, sound stage work at Fox. And then we were done. Then the movie came out and, uh, you know, changed, made Altman's career and mm-hmm. changed a lot of things for a lot of us. Uh, and it was, uh, it was really, you know, was, uh, if, if, you, if you're going to break into the movies, that's the way to do it. Oh, you know, absolutely. Get, get a part in a hit film. <laughs> that's been just part of the good luck that I've had as a, as an actor and as a human being, you know, and I, I one of my other friends in the committee, was also hired to do a movie, but the movie that he was hired to do was uh, a film called Viva Max with Peter Ustinov. And it, it was, you know, far less well-received than MASH was. And of course, then when they made the movie of MASH, for some reason, they didn't ask any of us to be in it except Gary Berghoff, uh, Radar. To this day, I don't understand why him and no one else, but that's how it was. Yeah. But Roger Bowen, who played the the first uh, Colonel Blake before McLean Stevenson, uh, Roger was a committee guy. I was in the committee with Roger mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And Roger had been active in uh, Playwrights, Playwrights Theater and Compass Players, which were the ancestors of 
all improvisation at the University of Chicago in the 50s. So knowing what you know today, I say the name Steven Spielberg. What immediately is your first thought? Oh, you know, that, that, that's uh, genius. I mean, you know, that's, uh, you, you're, you're talking about a guy who unequaled in the history of cinema. You know, in 140 years of movies, he's, he's like, when you adjust for inflation, he's got like five of his films are in the top 10 of all time. Mm-hmm. There's nobody like that. Uh, he has a, a preternatural skill at storytelling and filming. You know, he, he, he eats, lives, and breathes film. Mm-hmm. We, we, hung a, we, we had the same agent, and he, we hung around a lot, and he put us together on different projects, which we could never sell because <laughs> nobody would hire Steven as a director at that point. And we were oh. writing films for, for me to write and for him to direct. I always said we would have, if we had stayed together after Jaws, we could have been Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond. <laughs> But he didn't need an IAL diamond, you know. He had any, anybody he wanted. So and and he was a you know he was a bold faced name, no question about it. And now you know we still see each other, but you know the cave we only see each other when we're both wearing tuxedos and ah. and we we nod. But you know there's a, a trajectory in stars' lives, and eventually you hit a point where your old friends can't afford to keep up. You know when when you're Steven Spielberg. You got to hang out with Tom Hanks because nobody else can afford to get up and go on a yacht to Cannes on a moment's notice, and that's that's what happens. Mm-hmm. So you reach a point in your life more as a performer than as a director, but you reach a point in your life where everybody you know is on the payroll. You know, you everybody you know you pay to know them. It's your your trainer, your nutritionist, your cook, your you know your stage manager, your you know all the people who take care of you become the only people you talk to. If you're lucky, some of them will be honest with you, but only up to a point, not when their jobs are concerned. If they're going to tell you something that's going to get you fired, they're not going to tell it to you. So you have to get through that phase where you're picking up the check for everybody. And then you got to start hanging out with people who can do the same things that you do. You want to go to Aspen for the weekend skiing, you just jump on a private plane and go. You want to take your $200 million yacht to the South Seas, you know, you ask Tom Hanks and a few other people thinking, you know, they, yeah, okay. Well, we'll just take the boat as far as Tahiti and then we'll fly back. Okay. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a different world out there. I guess so. And he and he's a part of that world, not a part of my world. Right. So now, you know, like I say, we only run into each other when we're both wearing tuxedos or, you know, industry functions. Do you guys, do you look fondly back at your first meeting? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I we, we we worked very it was very it was very funny my my house uh in hollywood was kind of a salon it was just you know just a lot of people would hang out it was very centrally located uh halfway between laurel canyon and hollywood and the hollywood bowl and the recording studios in hollywood so anybody who was in laurel canyon you know, crosby mitchell nash you know stills uh the association. I mean, and, and anybody who was in the music business in Laurel Canyon would go into Hollywood to record or to play at the Hollywood Ball or play at the Greek Theater. And they knew that if they stopped at our house, they could smoke a joint, meet some friends, see who else was out that night. And uh, Stephen was, became a part of that because we were hanging out. And I'll never forget when he got his first job directing, he bought a new car and it was an orange Pontiac Trans Am with a spoiler which is exactly what a kid from Phoenix would buy as his first car. <laughs> Stephen, being very socially conscious, so very, very aware of his surroundings, is very aware of how to you know, capitalize on his uh, environment. He looked around and realized, oh, shit, you know, nobody else is driving these. Everybody's driving Mercedes, a little 450 coupe. So boom, the Pontiac was gone, and he got a Mercedes like everybody else. <laughs> The making of Jaws is legendary with its struggles in production. Looking back today, are you amazed it ever got made? Uh, no, it was a studio picture. The studio had committed to it. The studio head's wife was in it. St- uh, Stephen was a protege of Sid Sheinberg's. And it was a classic studio film, you know, with a camera department and a wardrobe department. It was, you know, it wasn't an indie prod. It was a it was a, a universal picture, and it was made like a universal picture, 
and it had you know enormous problems and went over budget and you know all of that right but it was a studio picture and everybody just to all of us who were there it was a job you know like you, you did that job and then you went on to the next you know went on to the next picture if you could get one and also i was lucky enough that one when my part of the work when the script was finished uh, i got to go home because mm. i had you know i i shared a house with steven we, you know we we had a house together when we finished shooting everything that wasn't dialogue that wasn't shark chasing i got to go home so i took my my meager salary and per diem and bought a little baby bmw a little tiny 2002 <laughs> model do you remember uh, bought it in New Jersey with my Jaws money, and we drove it back to L.A., stopping in Nashville to visit my friend Altman, who was making a, a movie in Nashville at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a little bit of a break here. It's a great stopping point. So we have tons more to get into, but let's just use this opportunity to do a nice big stretch, refill that drink, close your eyes, and do some deep breathing exercises, Cluzo style. Check out these two friends of the show, and we will be right back. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Hey, Joey, watch this! something that'll reach this branch ought to work remember frozen ponds and rivers may not be totally frozen and we could be skating on thin ice now we know and knowing is half the battle G.I. Hello there, Gigawater gang. I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul mouth comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take that aliens did not build the pyramids, serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children. Listen, I know what you're thinking, Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghosts of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Welcome back to the Derek Duvall Show. I tell you, those shows you just heard a promo for are really good quality shows. I listen to them myself. I wouldn't put my name on something I didn't believe in. I hope you give them a listen after we finish with this one. We still have so much more to cover in this program, so let's get right back into it. Here is the conclusion of our interview with the legendary Carl Gottlieb. One thing I want to know is, what are your favorite memories of Robert Shaw? Oh, he was... Hell of a playwright. Hell, hell, hell of a playwright. A, a, a provocateur. He was one of those people who would just, you know, kind of push you just to see how far he could push you. <laughs> the Irish. <laughs> yeah. It, it, he, he was... Very much that kind of guy. And he liked to drink. Uh, but he and I got along because we were both writers. We related as writers, mm -hmm. not as a, you know, as a production guy or a, a movie star or any of those things. Uh, you know, I was trying to give him good dialogue and, and he was trying to do his job as an actor, although drinking would interfere with that. But nonetheless, you know, when the time came, he obviously delivered. 
I have a question for you. If he was alive, if he had lived a lot longer than he normally did, what do you think his opinion of his time on Jaws would have been, do you think? Oh, I, th- I think he would have acknowledged how, how important it was in, in his career. Although he had a, you know, he had a good career before that. Exactly. That was my thing. Like I said, you know, you've got James Bond. I mean, after, Spain, you know, yeah. the movies that he made, you know, he wasn't, he, he would have been wherever, uh, you know, Lawrence Olivier and Kenneth right. Branagh and Richard Harris and uh, Tom Courtney and Bob Hoskins and, you know, all that, yeah. that whole London school of actors, the, 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 the hard drinking, brilliant actors, Richard, Richard Burton. Burton. Yeah. He was he was one of them. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you. Um, a couple about two months ago, no, three months ago now, I had a survivor of USS Indianapolis on the show. Oh, which one? Uh, I had Dick Phelan. Mm, don't, I don't know him. Oh. I've well, met two. You met two. Well, there's I... only there's only four left now. Uh, Dick passed away about uh, for a couple weeks ago, actually. Mm. Um, but he told me um, I asked him about what we call the Jaws effect. And he told me that other survivors' families were unaware of the sinking that Quint talks about in the film even happened. And through that scene, there were a lot of awkward conversations with survivors' families because they had never told their loved ones what had happened um, a long time ago. Did you ever get any of that later on in their life? No. The, the, the ones I met, I met one in – I was doing a tour, a book tour for the Jaws log. So I was doing some uh, a radio station interview in the Midwest somewhere, Ohio or someplace, and a caller called in and said that he had been on the Indianapolis. I said, wow, you know, pleased to meet you. Was, was it like we said in the movie or was it? He said, well, a lot of, he said most of the deaths were hypothermia and, and uh, drowning. It, was, it wasn't quite the shark fest that was described in the movie. But he says, but, you know, but it was, God knows it was awful. Yeah. And the other guy I met was a farmer in the Midwest named Roman Haroska, who was, I guess, in the, worked uh, below decks in the kitchen. And when the ship took a torpedo, he made it to the deck. And essentially, he thought he was going to have to jump into the ocean, but he was able to just step off the boat into the ocean because it was already sinking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, like I watch on YouTube occasionally, you'll do what they call reaction videos. And there'll be people who have seen, you know, movies for the first time and they react while they watch them. And one of them, a lot of people watch Jaws for the first time and they on no knowledge of anything about the movie at all. They, they're going into it blind, which baffles me sometimes. But every time they get to the Indianapolis scene, they think it's just some Hollywood lore of it, you know, to make the, the picture sound better. And in the comment section below, you'll see every almost every single comment is the Indianapolis happened. And then they send links, you know, to the you know survivors interviews and stuff like that. And um, I, in a way, like I said, you know, Jaws, in a way, has kind of kept that story alive, in, in, if you want to really want to call it that. Well, yeah, the uh, the the, uh, the poor skipper who was court-martialed wasn't exonerated until after his death. Yeah. It's just fascinating stuff that comes out. I remember there was some wonderful research done, uh, I guess, after the uh, Japanese government opened their military archives, we got to see the reports in the ship's log of the Japanese submarine commander who had actually sunk the Indianapolis. And we got to hear his side of it. And, and there's all kinds of research that's been done. Was it a moonlit, moonlit night? Not I, Like I said, I mean, I, the, everybody knows the story. I mean, I, I've heard, you know, it's been written. It was written several times, several different versions written. And Robert Shaw took a stab at it and they ended up filming that version. And, and like yeah. I said, I mean, it's perfect what it is on screen. I mean, it's one of the most famous monologues probably in motion picture history you know shaw's son is doing a play in london i on. heard about that i would love to see it well it's in london until february and they may they you know they'll they may try to bring it to broadway who knows there was another one i saw um richard dreyfus was on some uh british talk show not long ago and uh robert shaw's daughter or granddaughter one of the two was in the audience oh yeah that happened in ireland it was a year yeah. two, a couple of years ago three yeah years i saw ago. that it was beautiful to watch very touching. Dreyfus. Dreyfus has a real soft spot in his heart for Shaw, and well, you can see in that in, in that moment where he's he's he cries. Yeah, it was very moving. I will admit. So just to finish up, it's been forty six years since the release of Jaws, and it is constantly atop 
Many film historians, pop culture enthusiasts list for properly, possibly the greatest film of all time. Now, after 46 years, why do you think the film has endured and remained so relevant in the public eye? Oof. You know, those things are fucking unknowable. Why, you know, why is the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa, and, you know, there's a hundred other portraits, many by this uh, artist, that are not classics. I mean, they're, they're classics, but they're not, you know, the Mona Lisa. So with any kind of iconic work of art that kind of transcends time and place, you can only speculate as what the reasons are. First of all, in British terms, it's a ripping good yarn. <laughs> oh, it's a real good adventure story, man against the sea, man against the beast. You know, so you got, you got that going for it. It's, it's a tale of high adventure. Mm-hmm. It's also scary. The shark is one of the great villains of all time. Doesn't require a lot of motivation as to why he's a villain. It, it's, uh, it was just the, uh, the writer's conceit that the shark was this uh, killing machine. So you have a perfect villain. You've got three likable co-leads. You've got a subplot about public responsibility. It just has all, all the elements. I mean, I, I, it, I wouldn't, I would, maybe I would put it in my top 10 list, but you know, the, there are other films that are equally deserving that uh, nobody's going to duplicate. There's no, ca- nobody's going to make another Casablanca. Nobody's going to make a, another, you know, Gone with the Wind. You know, there's all, all kinds of movies that have become you know, legendary. You know, it's funny. I talked to a, a couple of Spielberg enthusiasts and they, I mean, they're, we're talking like these are, you know, they live, breathe and die Spielberg. Sure. And they won't even put Jaws in their top, maybe in the top five. And it, to me, as an outsider looking in, I'm like, how, how is that not possible? But, you know, they'll, they'll say Private Ryan, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, E.T. They'll, they'll pull these other ones and you're like, okay, I, I could see that maybe, but yeah, I for me as an outsider looking in, I, I I mean I think it's a masterpiece of modern cinema. Yeah, and it was uh, kind of a result of a lot of things. First of all, don't uh, underestimate the score by John Williams, for which oh, he won an Academy Award. Yeah. Don't under, underestimate the editing by Verna Fields, who also won an Academy Award. Now, granted, they were working with the material that Spielberg gave them with the footage, but they contributed mightily to the finished effect. Mm-hmm. It's a great example of, of uh, how collaboration can produce work that is, you know, far above even the individual collaborators' best mm-hmm. instincts. Although Spielberg, like, you know, Spielberg is a phenomenon. There's nobody like him. Yeah. If he had lived in the Middle Ages, he would have been Da Vinci or Michelangelo. Ooh, I like that. That's a, wow. I never even thought of that. That's, that's good. I like that. I am amazed at how timeless the film is when you're watching it, with the exception of a couple of haircuts and sideburns and some kind of ridiculous lapels uh, and the absence of cell phones. It's a very contemporary looking picture. It's hard to tell that you're 46 years ago. Have you seen it in 4K ultra high definition yet? I I have the Blu-ray. I may have seen it on a big screen somewhere. They released the I have the Blu-ray. They have a 4K um, ultra high definition version that got released about uh, six, seven months ago, and it's—I've never seen the film look. It looked like it was thought. It looked like it was shot yesterday. Oh, it, see, it well, there you that, go. It looks that beautiful. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, one thing you can say for Steven Spielberg without fear of contradiction is he knows his way around a camera. You say one thing though about it being timeless. I make a joke every time I watch that movie that I would love to have. Um, the anchor suit that uh, Murray Hamilton wears. Everybody wants that. I love that. I don't know. I've seen people try to reproduce it on uh, different thread stores, but I'm like, no, I'm not paying that much for it. But it's so much fun. No, I I, I even heard that somebody found a bolt of that fabric somewhere. I've never seen a duplicate. And it was bought off the rack. You know, there's there's kind of a wardrobe mistress just bought it at a local haberdasher's. It's amazing how that happens. Yeah. So let's talk to Jaws Log. Jaws Log is considered by some to be a practical Bible of sorts into the myth of filmmaking. Yep. What originally inspired you to write it? And that, that had an interesting genesis. There was a uh, universal... you got to remember that merchandising and ancillary rights were in a relatively primitive stage 
1974. I mean, there were some sweatshirts and a lunchbox and a coffee mug, but you know that that was like it for merch. Mm-hmm. And Universal was thinking of getting into the publishing game, so there was an idea floated that they would do a coffee table book about Jaws because the, the film looked like it was going to be a hit. Hadn't come out yet, but into the the early signs were were promising. So the studio said, well, let's do a coffee table book with three parts, one part by Zanuck and Brown, one part by Steven Spielberg, and one part by Peter Benchley, talking about this film that they all did. And everybody said, okay, that's a good idea. And then Steven, who was busy preparing uh, Close Encounters, said to me, well, you know, I don't have really have time to do this. Would you mind ghostwriting my third of it? And I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll write your third. And then Zanuck and Brown got too busy and then got Peter Benchley got too busy. So they turned, everybody turned to me and said, well, can you write this book by yourself? And uh, with the uh, recklessness of youth, I said, yeah, sure. And I went off to a fat farm with all my notes. And luckily, I mean, I was the perfect person to do the book because I had lived through all the stuff on the vineyard. I was physically present for all of that. And for the stuff that I wasn't physically present for, I could interview the players. I, I spoke to the little guy who uh, went in the shark cage in Australia. I talked to Ron and Valerie Taylor. You know, anybody who I didn't meet or interview on the vineyard, I caught up with when I got the commission to write the book. Mm-hmm. So I, I had all my notes and I went off uh, to write the book. I wrote it very quickly. They uh, wanted to have it out in time for the release of the film. So uh, the movie opened on June something, and in July 9th, my book was released, got a good review. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. It got was well-reviewed, and it was well, God knows it was well-distributed. The only real money I made from Jaws was the royalties from the Jaws log. It just sold like 22 million, uh, 20, 23 printings, I think, you know, 3 million paperbacks. I was about to say is how many prints have you gone through now? Yeah, well, 23 then, okay. and then now another four or five. with Because uh, I, I got the rights back. I got the copyright back uh, around 2000 with the 30th anniversary edition. Did you ever get any feedback back from your colleagues after it was released? Like, hey, this you didn't you knocked out the park? Um, no, people, people are all comp. Everybody's complimentary. I mean, the book sells well. Everybody loves it. Mm-hmm. It's been reprinted, like I say, you know, four times. Since, since I rewrote it, mm-hmm. because the, the great thing was about the rewrite was I was able to put in all the stuff that I didn't have time to put in the first time. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of explanatory notes. You know, the original book had no footnotes. The new edition has lots of footnotes. And I got a chance to flesh out the book. Obviously, there's been lots of books about Jaws. Yeah. But uh, mine keeps uh, yeah. coming back as the classic. I remember I read I read it the first time. It was in 1987 um, when I was living in Great Britain. My it was bought it was bought for me as a Christmas present, and it was believe it or not, and this no word of a lie, it was one of the very first books I ever had that actually helped me learn how to read on an adult level. Uh. If that makes you feel any better, I don't know. I don't know if that is, but it was one of the very first books I ever got that helped me le- to learn to read on an adult level. Oh, great. I'm yeah. happy to do that. <laughs> You're welcome. I told some people you were coming on the show, and I asked if anyone have asked any questions. There is one question that comes up, and I'm, I hope you don't mind me asking, okay? You okay. are the co-writer for Jaws 2, correct? Yes. Why is the mayor in Jaws 1 still the mayor in Jaws 2? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, no, didn't no, that, that, uh, uh, I think Sid Scheinberg explained the theory of, of sequels he says, you know, you, you have people over to your house, you make a nice roast beef dinner, everybody's happy. Next time you have a dinner party and you invite the same people, they want to have that roast beef dinner again. So you cook it again. You, you're giving your, your, your guests what they want. You know, that's why there's a shark in Jaws. You know, Jaws 2 is a classic sequel. Yeah. As I remind everybody, every chance I get, the iron law of sequels is that only the last one loses money. That's why we have two and three and Police Academy twelve. You know. Yeah. I didn't. I have nothing. I had nothing to do with four. They did it without me, and to this day, I've never seen it. I saw it on a dare once. So. Huh? Uh, yeah. yeah. There are some people who think it's as good as the others. 
And I don't know why, but you know they do. Yes, but they're all tucked up safely in their padded cells. So yeah. <laughs> we're going to move on now from Jaws. Okay, so what was it like to work on The Jerk? Well, that was great fun. I mean, uh, Steve and I knew each other going back to the Smothers Brothers days. We had stayed friends. I housed at his house in Aspen. I fed his cats. You know, we, we knew each other. And his career trajectory was taking off. And David Picker, who at that time was president of Paramount Pictures, saw Steve in concert and said, wow, this guy's going to have a, history, a career in movies. And he signed Steve to a three-picture deal for scripts that he would write for himself to perform in. And he funded a short subject starring Steve. The intention was to for Paramount to film the short, release it with Grease or one of their big pictures of that year, and accustom the movie audience to Steve Martin as a movie performer, not just a nightclub, you know, comic. Which was actually a strategy right out of Hollywood in the 30s, where you, if you had an up-and-coming young actor, you put him in a couple of B movies, and then when they were seasoned, then you put them in their starring vehicle. Well, there's no more B-movies. The studio system was dead. But at least he could do a short subject. And we did The Absent-Minded Waiter, which was nominated for an Academy Award and was very, very funny. And then Steve came to me and said, listen, you've written a movie, Jaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've actually written, by that time, I had written another movie. I had written uh, Which Way Is Up with Richard Pryor. Because you work with Richard Pryor. Would you work on this movie with me? And I said, sure. Happy to. It's a long story, but we eventually we sat down. And we wrote uh, we wrote what was going, what became later the jerk. We, it was called Easy Money the first time we wrote it, and then it needed a couple of rewrites. And then a, a, uh, there was a management change at Paramount, and Picker was ousted by uh, Barry Diller and Mike Eisner, who came in to run Paramount. And as usually happens, the previous studio heads' projects are shit canned. Uh, and that was okay because uh, they made a deal. They said, look, Steve's management and David Picker said, we believe in this film. Tell you what, you still owe Steve for two scripts, you know, at least half a million dollars. We'll let you out of your script commitment if you give us the short subject to own. Just give it to us. Yeah, you paid for it, but what do you care? Give us the short subject. Give us the rights to screenplay that Steve has already written and we'll go our separate ways. And they said, sure. So from there, it was a very easy uh, sell to place the picture at Universal. So the the picture was made at Universal and became another hit. Mm. Uh, I I didn't work on it all the way because I I had to leave and do something else. So Michael did a rewrite, which, uh, and the, and the screen, when the, when the, Smoke and Dust Cleared, the screen credits on The Jerk, is story by Carl Gottlieb and Steve Martin, uh, screenplay by uh, Steve Martin, Carl Gottlieb, and Michael Elias. What is your opinion on the on the current state of Hollywood now? Is it all superhero movies, or is it, you know, is there is there room still for maybe some independent uh, genius out there? Um, well, you know, maybe I just because I'm old, my comment on Hollywood today is... First of all, I don't know any of the players, and I don't like any of the things that they're in. And I don't like the content, and I don't like the people performing it. So I have no interest in learning about them or following them. I mean, I'll see a good movie from time to time. Uh, I thought uh, Belfast was good. I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't see much that appeals to me, and I find myself either going back to the classics or reading a book instead. I love Charlie Kaufman's work. I like uh, the Coen Brothers. I like the Coen Brothers. Yeah, Coen Brothers. Yeah, they'll. God, they. Do you still do any script work? Are you considered retired? I'm considered retired. I've got three or four scripts in my trunk that I wrote on spec over the years that I think would make good movies, but I can't seem to interest anybody else in them. Uh, and one of them is a big budget superhero kind of not a superhero. It's a big budget tentpole movie. Mm about uh, it's funny i was writing about pirates in somalia 20 years ago and then they made captain phillips yeah and then they made captain phillips <laughs> and then uh, 
and it's and it's still an issue. I still get you know it's, there's still a lot of weirdness going on off of the, both the east and west coast of Africa, but around Nigeria and also around still around Somalia. Uh, no, I'm 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 retired. It's uh, writing. You know, I, there's two kinds of writers. There's deadline writers like myself who only write when we get paid. Yeah. And then there's habitual writers who wake up in the morning and have to write. Stephen King, Agatha Christie. I mean, they, you know, they're just uh, writers who just get up and start, and they just write. They have to write a thousand words before lunch. Uh, they're lucky because they, they have a body of work. Yeah. Me, I am, I've, I've got a small body of work, and I only write when I'm paid. So mm-hmm. if nobody's paying, I'm not writing. And now it's, it's such painful, lonely work that I probably wouldn't do it unless the author was really good yeah. or if it was something I was obsessed with writing, which I'm not. So you do um, the web fan service. You do Cameo. Have you had much fun with that? Um, yeah, I, I kind of dropped out of Cameo because the software was glitchy and I wasn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't pay enough really to, yeah. to justify the time. But I have a friend who's an actor who was never a huge hit as an actor, but he has some memorable roles and he gets up every morning and records six, seven cameos. It pays the rent. He makes a lot of money from cameo. This is a lot of his, his product has been shown all over the world. So he gets people on cameo from India and Australia and South Africa, just all over the world. So you say you're retired. So what does the future hold for Carl Gottlieb? Oh, death eventually. Oh, and not that far away. Oh, uh, you know, 84. Oh, I'm very happy if I get to be 90. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the, the future. I might write something if, if I get a wild hair up my ass and decide, oh, this I should write this. Or if somebody comes to me with a collaborative project that catches my attention and, and um, uh, it's someone I can work with. So I guess, you know, never say never. But, long, you know, writing is lonely, difficult work. You know, as George Bernard Shaw once said, Somebody said, Mr. Shaw, do you like writing? And he said, no, I like having written. The actual act of writing is painful to me. I have a, I have a friend of mine who was actually my first guest I ever did on the show, and he gets up every morning and he has a goal. He has to write 1,000 publishable words. That's his goal. Every day he wakes up is to write 1,000 publishable words. Oh, boy, is he going to have a suitcase full of paper when he's old? <laughs> Actually, he's not going to have a suitcase full of paper. He's just going to have a thumb drive. <laughs> I'll tell him you said that. That's great. So um, I like to end my interviews with my favorite question. And if anybody can answer this the best, I, I, I'm pretty sure it can be you. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? Do what makes you happy and don't hurt anybody. All right. The Jaws Log is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Carl? Thank you ever so much for taking the time to do this. This is, again, a real honor for me. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, listeners, for who haven't bought the book yet for going out and buying it. You will. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 35. I want to thank the truly legendary Carl Gottlieb from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to come on my show and discuss what is one of the most important contributions to modern cinema This is an episode that, for me, it will be on my Mount Rushmore for forever. That being said, as we roll into 2022, or as I saw a meme the other day, 2022, uh, I've got tons of interviews recorded, and believe me, there are some amazing guests in there. Stay tuned. And when I mean amazing, like think like people who've been in like Sports Illustrated or have won awards or stuff like that. We are talking legit great guests. Have you had a chance to leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or left a rating on Spotify for The Derek Duvall Show? If you would take a second to do so, it would mean the world to me. Your support is what is driving the thrill of doing this show, to be quite honest with you. So, on behalf of everyone of The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to you, be safe, be well, and have a happy new year. I will leave you with a great quote from the wisdom of Barney Stinson to take with you to 2022, and that is, whatever you do in this life, it is not legendary unless your friends are there to see it. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it makes a great deal of sense to me. Nostar, God bless, and all lang syne.
planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.